Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You're going down a road of an identity anyway, whether you like it or not. And it's sort of like the old thing I used to say about brand a long time ago, which is like, you have a brand whether you like it or not. You don't have to work on it. It's just, you know, people have impressions of you. And I think that's true here as well. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my blanketed co-host, Rodney (laughs) Evans. Hi, everyone. If you could see her now, she is surrounded by the softest down blankets to provide that that dulcet tone for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, On today's episode, we're going to talk about politics at base camp. How could we not? It's been an interesting couple weeks on the internet. But before we get into that, of course, we should check in. Of course we will. And you need a check-in round because you just came from talking to a group for one hour and are now being asked to continue performing, (laughs) which is the perfect use for a check-in round. Tap dance. To just get us here. Okay, so you and I are among the very privileged people who are vaccinated. Have you been out in the world? And if so, how did it go? That's my checking question. <laughs> so, yeah, I have been out in the world. So, Britt and I took a bike ride. Well, one of us took a scooter, one of us took a bike to our local park burger, our burger joint here mm-hmm. in the park. And we sat on the patio, which is technically outside, but is too crowded that I would have done it before. Yep. Like it's a tight pack. Mm-hmm. And so we sat, we had delicious burgers, we drank a uh, seltzer from the fountain which felt you like love that. insane Bubble luxury sauce. and then we rode back and it felt like normal life so your review is 10 out of 10 positive 10 out of 10 would do again just felt weird okay yeah i feel like <laughs> yeah my my take is more along the weird side so it's interesting because i'm such an extrovert i would have <laughs> thought like it would just be green lights when i got back out into the world but As you know, Ed and I took a couple of days away last week for our 10-year anniversary. And on the last day that we were at this very fancy hotel, uh, we went to the pool. And there were these three women who were there on some sort of girls' day. Okay. And I could not tune them out. Like, Mm. I am so unaccustomed now to being around people having ambient conversation (laughs) that I couldn't read a book. Like, I couldn't do anything. No joke. I almost was like, ladies, you work. They were across the pool, and I was just like, tell me more about pharma sales. So, I I don't know. It feels like a weird readjustment period where this thing that in before a pandemic, I would have just been like, completely tune out you know, construction and conversation and music playing and everything else. Now, having lived in this bubble, it's really hard. Yes. Imagine when we travel, like we're doing like the whole thing, right? Can you imagine all the tune out that you used to do? 
I so much. I don't know. I'm going to probably need to just like up my noise yeah, canceling. The muscles have atrophied. They sure have. So we're going to talk about Basecamp. I, I wanted to talk about this. I know a lot of people are talking about it, but there were some things about it that felt to me like very ways of working related. And also Basecamp is a company that we have long admired and looked to for examples. And so seeing what's happened there over the last week or so has obviously been interesting and disheartening and confusing. And so we just thought it would be an interesting thing to dive into a little bit. So like someone in every Twitter thread that I've read about it, Aaron, what is going on over there? What has happened? <laughs> There's always somebody that's like, I don't know what we're talking about. Yes, so I'm going to no. be that person right now. It, so it, yeah. it's a reminder to me of how my Twitter is different from someone else's Twitter, mm. that this comes up and people are like, what? And I'm like, I literally can't get away from it. Like, I, if I, you know, there's nothing I can do. So here's what happened. Basecamp, which is a software company that makes project management software and email software, which has been known for more than a decade for being a very progressive workplace with very countercultural, iconoclastic views about work, uh, and who has themselves a good podcast and a good book on the subject, had went through a kind of a scandal where we found out later that a best names ever list was created a long time ago at Basecamp of of different users and their names and and the names that were deemed funny or weird or interesting by the Basecamp employee base. And there was some inside joking going on about those names over the years. Some of the names were names that were associated with people that were, you know, not historically American white names. And some of them were just names that were silly that had, you know, had a a pun built into them or what have you. But more recently, with all the things that have been going on around diversity and equity and inclusion at work, employees at Basecamp brought up this list as kind of a thing that we have to deal with some dirty laundry that needs to be that needs to be ironed out. And as a result of the ensuing conversation and drama and and frankly, distraction that was created by that, CEO Jason Fried announced that Basecamp would ban employees from holding societal and political discussions on the company's internal chat forums as part of a broader set of announcements about their ways of working. But the, but the main punchline was, we're not going to talk about politics or society at work anymore. We're going to get heads down and focus on our application and building for our customers. And the backlash from this was pretty extreme. So many employees within the firm got irritated, agitated about what was said in in that memo, which has been since edited several times. And the world at large on Twitter just sort of lost its mind collectively. One of the best takes that I saw in a piece by Casey Newton that was on platformer.news, one of the people he interviewed said, we've hired opinionated people, we've created opinionated software, and now basically the company has said, well, your opinions don't really matter unless it's directly related to business. And so the the fallout from that is that something like 20 or 30% of the entire Basecamp workforce has resigned. Quite a few customers have done the same. Some people have come out in favor of this, like Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong, who had written a similar memo before his company went public about banning politics at work. And it just leaves us all with a like, what does it all mean? What the hell is happening kind of taste in our mouths. And so we got to unpack it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We so, got what it. did you what did you think when you first heard about this going on, and what you know what questions did you have? Yeah. Well, so there are two my two hottest takes. One that I shared with you and Jordan in Slack, but you know when I read DHH's memo, my first DHH being the other co founder, the other co founder and CTO. My my first and last take was like, must be nice. 
<laughs> Must be nice to be in such a position of privilege and power that you can just be like, mm, this is distasteful. I'd rather not see this appear on my channels, you know? And and I don't mean that actually because I, I don't think it's nice at all. But it to me, it just was like such a privileged take to be able to be in a situation where you're like, I'm uncomfortable. I don't like this. And rather than figuring out a way that's workable for a group that's frankly not that big, I'm just going to shut it down because like I've decided it's not productive to me. Right. And so that was my first take was I was like, this feels like a weird unilateral and very privileged departure from what I understand about how Basecamp has been traditionally run. And my second hot take was like saying I just made up this moment, which is under stress, we regress. And I think <laughs> I think this is true. And I see us do this at the ready too. Like when shit feels like it's hitting the fan culturally and it's like, you know, some experiment feels like it's gotten out of the lab. I think a lot of us have a tendency to get grippy. And right, to be like, right. oh, God, like this, something about this isn't what I expected or it's taken on a life of its own or it feels like it's snowballing in some way. And rather than approaching that the way that we've traditionally and historically approached most things, like the monkey mind takes over and it's like, I got to kill it. I just got to I got to shove it back I call in. this the, the zombie bite phenomenon. When you watch a zombie movie and someone gets bit and they like machete the arm off immediately. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, you know, the, we haven't really thought this through. Right, right. And it's like, I think most of us who have been in roles that are power holding roles in, in systems know what that moment feels like when mm -hmm. there is an unintended thing happening, a movement gets a lot of traction or an idea that you don't agree with or whatever it is, like not necessarily related to inclusion or, or Jedi work, but just whatever it is. And you're just like, oh, fuck, this is not this is not going the direction I want it to be. And, and it feels I think it feels rational because of how heightened the stress level is right. to take an equally heightened action in shutting it down. But uh, I don't think that was the move here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually funny because there's a lot of debate among the different polarities of our political system, which is ironic, about was this a good move or a bad move? Mm -hmm. What are the consequences, right? So woke Twitter and, and just sort of humanists everywhere are like really aligning with your first take, mm -hmm. which is, hey, you know what? Not everybody has the privilege to not bring political and society issues to work because mm -hmm. guess what? They're black, they're trans, they're, you know, they like identify in a way that puts them in a different position, often at risk, often on alert, it is part of their everyday existence. And so yeah. the idea that we would just be like, oh, yeah, George Floyd was killed. Shut the fuck up about that person of color. That is that's just so offensive, I think, to people that are looking at it from that perspective. Absolutely. And then there's another perspective, which is kind of the let's call it white male technorati rich privileged guy libertarian perspective which is business is for business. And there's no way we're going to get anywhere good if we talk about politics and society because we're so polarized, right? There's no, mm -hmm. there's no there there for us to have a breakthrough if we've really hired a diverse workforce in terms of political ideology and identity. And so all it's going to create is agita. All it's mm -hmm. going to create is misery. And that sucks too. So let's just ban it and get over with it, right? right. And I think that's, that's sort of the other take. And I, I get the... I have empathy for the emotional side of that story, which is like, it is true. If you hire a diverse enough group of people and you put them in a pressure cooker and then you have them in this society, in this moment, 
the chances that like they're gonna talk it out on on you know policing is really low like yeah. it's probably not gonna happen but by the same token i'm not sure that just pretending that's not happening is an actually viable alternative yeah and um and and two things about that second argument that happen a lot in these conversations with people who have a lot of privilege and hold a lot of power one is there is the assertion that is so convenient because you cannot prove it wrong that no good will come from this. Right. And I'm like, you don't know that. Right. Nobody right. knows that. And usually in situations that are messy and charged and fraught, the only way out is through. Yes. Usually yes. there is not a way around. But I've had that argument many times with many people about transformation and about other things that in the mess, it's like no good will come from this. And I'm like, well, let's not argue with each other about things that no one can actually know. And the other argument that I've seen crop up a little bit, which is my least favorite trapping of debate, is any kind of slippery slope argument. Right, right. I just think it's fucking lazy and people make it all the time. And it's like, well... <laughs> If we let that, then what? And I'm like, okay, well, not everything is a slippery slope, A. B, we don't even know if we're on that slope. C, we don't know where it's leading. And D, that assumes that we can't actually steer as we go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my understanding of Basecamp's history around dialogue and openness and dealing with gnarly and complicated issues is that there has been an outsized amount of transparency. Mm -hmm. And so to mm -hmm. me, the idea that, that, that culturally they've gotten to a point where that unconstrained or ungoverned or unregulated in some way is no longer tenable doesn't mean that the only option is nothing. There is a third option here. There is the chaotic option, which is like anybody can say anything <laughs> to anyone in whatever channel. And then there's this option that feels draconian and censoring and privileged and, you know, kind of ignorant, frankly. And there is a third way here and I just, I'm, I'm curious whether they tried. Like, were there proposals, were there proposed working agreements to the, the whole company or a subset of the company around opting into certain channels, having certain agreements around the way we discuss politics or societal issues, like not allowing ad hominem attacks or sure. only citing articles from credible sources or... Was anything proposed to constrain this in a way that made it safe, but also still accessible for, frankly, the people who need it on the one hand and the people who should be paying attention, but don't necessarily need it on the other? Right, right. And I think the answer is probably some, but not enough. You know, from what I've seen, there was a burgeoning DEI council that was starting to put together some thoughts before this happened, but didn't really get heard, et cetera. So I think there's been some learning, obviously. And I think, you know, the the hardest thing about this, this announcement and this sort of energy has been that like, these are two very thoughtful guys mm -hmm. that that like, and even now, like, if you read some of DHH's blog posts about it, while they still are completely blind to the identity stuff and the privilege stuff, in my opinion, they're also like very measured, very yep. thoughtful, totally. very carefully worded, very smart. And, and so you read it and you're not like, that guy's an asshole. You're like, there's like a blind spot there, but that is a very thoughtful person talking about this. And, and so I, I think that that has made it harder, actually, that it's coming from, you know, people we trust, so to speak, in a way where we're seeing what could be any of our challenge kind of, you know, laid at their steps. And the fear that I have is that if you 
if you engage in this stuff and you figure out a right way to have that conversation and to and to take stances and to figure things out, it's very hard to not become a political organization. And mm. I actually think that's true generally in the world right now. It's very hard to be an organization that doesn't take sides mm-hmm. because everything that you do is connected to reality. This is complexity in action, right? Mm-hmm. So like what your take is on climate shows sure. up in how your footprint works as a Absolutely. company. Your take on diversity shows up in who you hire. Your take, right? So like, you know, with putting aside political funding, just being a company in the world, it's really hard, I think, yep. to just be a middle-of-the-road company in 2021. And I think it's going to get harder and harder. And the fear that I have is that for organizations like a Coinbase or a Basecamp that have said, you know, we're not going to play the politics game anymore, what is interesting about that is that it is inviting a form of homogeny. So mm-hmm. it's inviting a form of homogeny in the membership, which is to say, like, those people that left Basecamp are not going to be replaced by other people that want to join the DEI council, mm-hmm. right? They're going to be replaced yep. by other people that don't want to talk about politics at work. Yep. And what kind of people don't want to talk about politics at work? I have a thought. Me Could too. it be white privileged people? <laughs> right? Yeah, who, who so, can live without? Yeah, yeah. Who can right. who can live without it and can are just like that seems inconvenient and distracting. Yeah. So I and and you know that, that's maybe an oversimplification, and I'm sure there are other people that want that as well. But my point is just that you're going down a road of an identity anyway, whether yes. you like it or not. And it's sort of like the old thing I used to say about brand a long time ago, which is like you have a brand whether you like it or not. You don't have to work on it. Yeah. It's just you know people have impressions of you. And I think that's true here as well. Yeah, that's right. And and to me, you know, the in in unpacking a little bit about the privilege inherent in a decision like this, the idea that there is some kind of line between the personal and the professional and that we can have our work be in some way sealed off right. from the messiness of our world is in and of itself a very significant trapping of privilege. Many of us who can show up to work and do our jobs without thinking about the world day in and day out, it is because of identities we carry that are privileged identities because we right. like, didn't get pulled over on the way to work and like, <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I think your point is a good one, which is even privilege aside, when you start thinking about the number of decisions that you make as a business owner, whether it's examples like you gave around climate, like what's our travel policy? What's our carbon footprint, et cetera. Or it's like vendors, like who, you know, yeah, who, who are we, we giving our money to? Who who are we sort of aligned with? Because anytime we're giving our money to any very large corporation, that company has made decisions about politics. Yeah, And so I'm just like, it feels like such a false choice to me to say we're either going to talk about this or we're not because I'm like you can't not you are talking about it in some way whether it's with your Mm -hmm. money or Mm -hmm. your decisions or your internal channels or in this situation where you close down the internal channels and then just invite all of Twitter to talk to you about (laughs) you know your your work policies yeah yeah that's right it's it's sort of a an unavoidable thing and I think that whole line idea comes from the bureaucratic origin mm-hmm. of all of our way of working, which is wear the mask, right? Right. Wear the mask, be professional, right? That's what's been pounded into our heads for 100 years. Be professional. Yep. Don't come and cry at work because you have a problem at home. Be right. a professional. Right. And that's been like the, the battle cry for a long time. And then I think in the last 10 years, we stopped saying that as much. And now there's a little bit of a, of a pendulum swing going on. 
But, but of course, you know, in our work, we've been trying to get people to stop acting professional for the last five years. Like, yeah. just cut it out, be yourself, be real, and just, you know, sort of come what may. So, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating tension right now. And I'm very curious to see, you know, what other companies get on board with this. And frankly, just from like an experiment design perspective, what do they learn? Because like putting aside my own irritation about about some of the ways in which this is not inclusive, as an org designer, I'm also super curious to of just course. be like, how do you pull that off? Let's say you do want to be anti-political. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? What sorts of practices and agreements get you there? And yeah. what are the trade-offs? You know, what are they, what do you gain? What do you lose? Yeah, absolutely. I am I am curious what that sparked for me is. So this happened and it happened as as one announcement in a series of announcements. And we can talk about some of the other things that came up, which we all, you know, I also have views on as an org designer. But um, so, so obviously there was an ensuing shit storm, both in terms of employees and the public and customers, et cetera, et cetera. And though there have been rewritten memos, it has seemed to me that essentially the leadership has continued to double down on the decision that was made. Oh, yeah. Even as, you know, very significant leaders walk out the door and there's a question about whether their core product can effectively survive, et cetera. Sure. Like, I'm curious about your take on that because because you and I have had some moments where we are, you know, proposing something unpopular or trying to govern something that is really charged. And there is a balance of like, People don't like this. It doesn't mean it's wrong. We're going to nudge it unless it's really unsafe. Mm-hmm. And, oh, no, we fucked up. We should change course. Right, right. And, like, I actually think that that's quite a, it's a difficult line to walk. Because in the absence of the courage to be provocative and to be like, we are going to take a stand on something, you don't get anything interesting. And also, (laughs) I think you have to have, like, the humility to know when the stand you took was not the right one. Because you missed something that was really significant. Which, you know, I I think it's fair to say, in this case, that maybe was, was so. So, like... Yeah. What do you think about as 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 you sort of watch one of the co-founders just continue to to bust on Apple, you know, 40 times a day rather than uh, addressing what's happening? Yeah, I think it all boils down to principles and privilege again. So mm-hmm. on the principle side, and I think I, I would fall in this camp as well. There are certain things that you're just willing to like fall on your sword over. Mm. And, you know, if, if the rest of the ready was like, we want to be, you know, we want to be managed. I'd be like, leave. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, like I'm no. not, that's yeah. a hard no. And I'm willing to, I'm willing to suffer over that thing. And I think in the, in this case, these guys in particular are practiced iconoclasts. Like mm-hmm. they're known yeah, totally. for agitating the market with their thoughts and and their beliefs. And frankly, there are people that are a little bit more cynical than me that even think that's their entire marketing strategy. <laughs> that their entire marketing <laughs> strategy is say things that irritate people to get attention for your 50-person shop that is huh. equivalent to a thousand-person shop. So so I think they're very comfortable with being criticized and very comfortable with being, you know, in engaged in a challenging way. Mm-hmm. And I think they're pretty principled in the sense that like, if you think that Jason didn't read every single thing that happened to Coinbase after their announcement before making this post, you're just wrong. He did the homework and decided consciously to take on some version of what happened. Yeah, Now, yeah, maybe it blew up more than they expected, but like they did not expect this to be 
easy sailing. And you can tell from the wording of the first memo, which is like, this is me and DHH alone. Mm-hmm. We are committed to this. We're committed to the fallout of this. This was not, they weren't writing it with like a smiley face at the end. They knew it was going to be, it was going to be a tough road to hoe. And then the other part of it is privilege, which if you want to ask what's the difference between the kind of things that I would push on and things I would not push on, it does get down to like survivability. Mm. And for a company like, like Basecamp, you know, they're 20 years old, they make at least dozens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And those two people have been cashing in on that for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so if you think for a second that they have to keep working, keep sure. people employed, keep money coming in the door, like I fully believe those guys could be like, Basecamp is free forever. And it's just me and him for now on. And they'd be totally fine. Mm-hmm. So I think that level of privilege gives you a lot of flexibility to be like, we'll weather this like the next the next news story is coming right down the pike Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's interesting that's interesting what it makes me think about and makes my mind go to just as a heuristic for people who might be thinking of taking significant swings (laughs) is what i didn't see and have not seen even frankly in like the humongous Twitter backlash, which is part of why I wanted to do this episode, is yeah. I haven't I haven't seen a lot of people propose better ideas. Right. So I've seen a lot of like, you suck. Guys, <laughs> you shouldn't have done this, which I'm like, okay, fair enough. But one of the one of the signals that I listen for when I'm proposing something that I know is a little spicy and might make people a little uncomfortable. And obviously, you know, like Basecamp, this assumes that you have participatory governance structures and then like you have consent-based decision-making, which in and of itself is not usually true. But first of all, this is the shadow of that, right? It's like Mm -hmm. in a progressive culture, everybody has strong opinions and is accustomed to being heard. And so Mm -hmm. then when there's like a hard 180 from that people are like what the fuck is going on and and if you are the person who is pushing a provocative agenda of some kind i always think the move is like listen to the discomfort listen to the feelings let people do that and ask them to come up with something better because if they right. can't come up with something better then that's a really important signal if these guys thought about this and did research and, you know, spent a lot of time before they decided to do this and no one has said, like, here's a set of six working agreements that would allow us to have sure. these discussions in a way that's productive and also keep our culture somewhat safe. That's the space that I wonder about. And I have no way of knowing if that space was made or is there. But the way I read the announcement was like, we're sick of this. This is over. And I'm like, could you have asked the, the hive mind for something better? Right. But I think the the seed of what you're saying that's so important in this case is who is the system for and how mm-hmm. is that authority distributed? Because one of the most fascinating things about Basecamp in particular is that while it's a place with incredible autonomy for its individual agents, mm-hmm. it is not a, a place that has ever historically been one where it's really a system governed by its people. Mm-hmm. Right. Totally. It's always been, and I, I, I sort of figured out how to how to say this out loud in the last week, but Basecamp exists at its core for the enjoyment of Jason and David. Mm-hmm. And when that's the premise, that means that like other people will not have governance rights over the future of the organization and the big decisions it makes, 
which by the way is totally their right. Like that's their decision to make. Of course. But that's a, but that's a design principle that then plays out in a bunch of different ways. And so when people don't have authority over over the shape of a system or its future, then you can't really play the game that you just described. Yeah. Right? And you end up in the system where like, oh yeah, the only two equity holders are these people. The only two people that really set the direction for the company are these people. The only two people that really have final say about where the product goes is these people. Everybody else just works there. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that from a operational viability standpoint, but from a principle standpoint, obviously that breaks a few rules for me. Mm-hmm. And and it creates a scenario where where the likelihood of the outcome being good for everyone or balanced goes down and the likelihood of what happens being more extreme goes up. And it can be extremely good, as in some of the practices they've cooked up. I mean, Absolutely. quite literally, in Murmur right now, we're using some of their thinking about how to ship software. Yeah. It's great thinking. And it also creates the possibility for these negative swings, where it's like, well, we really missed that one. So that's the trade-off that you're making. And I think every organization has to decide right out of the gate, who is this for? Mm-hmm. Who needs to be you know, getting getting value out of this? And who's just along for the ride? Yeah, yeah. And, and even... <laughs> As you know, if I were just being completely robotic about it, (laughs) if that were a principle that was articulated and people could sign up to live and work that way or not, it would probably provide more clarity because it's like, okay, the limitation of my idea, opinion, proposal, critique is the limitation of where it's not fun or interesting for these two people. Right. That's an important thing to know. Yeah. If you're yeah. going to dedicate your life and 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 effectively trust that these two people are going to directionally head and their enjoyment is going to lead them to places that you want to go because right. because again I, I mean like anything else it's like we can um argue about what great principles are for adaptivity and for the future of work and any principle is better than no principle because it gets sure. us all clear on what we're living with. Sure, sure. And I don't know enough about the inside baseball here to know how explicit they are with people coming on about that idea. Mm. They might be very explicit. They might be not explicit. What I do know is that the the folks that chose to leave this week clearly didn't have all the facts. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, or or maybe just reached a point, right? Like it's also possible, you know, a business relationship is not a familial one and you can terminate it. And it's it could just be that like, New information is new information, and people have chosen to make different decisions. So I think that it's, yeah, it's quite nuanced. I totally agree. The the one other thing that I was curious to unpack a little bit with you is this idea that the firms that are the most progressive and that have had the most controversial and disruptive takes about how systems are run— also are held to the highest standards. And, you know, this is something that we run into at the ready. And I've definitely been in conversations where I'll be, you know, I'll be talking to like a friend or talking to my husband about some small kerfuffle that's happened at the ready. And and people on the outside are like, have those people ever had real jobs at like other companies? <laughs> like, do they, do they even know what? And honestly, like, I think one of, one of the reasons that I love the ready and will probably do this forever as long as I'm working is because of how many years I spent in like an institution <laughs> that right. really felt like being institutionalized. And right. I'm just like, you know, when we talk about anything difficult, whether that's about money or about membership or about mastery or whatever, I'm just like, I know 
exactly what it feels like to do the opposite of this. Mm-hmm. And I, there's just not a day that goes by that like I uh, don't remember that <laughs> and, and I'm not like anchored back to that thing. So I say all of that as preamble to say there's certainly been quite a number of people on social media who have just been like, basically these people don't know how good they have it. And like, they should just be grateful for working at this great place for this great culture and like shut up in color effectively. Right. Right. And so, you know, I'm just curious, like your sort of take on that, both in terms of them and also in terms of us, because I feel like you and I have definitely had conversations in our five years together that have been like, when will it be enough? And like, the answer is never. And also (laughs) that's life. There, yeah, there's this concept in the world of success and and career coaching and development of the hedonic treadmill, which is basically like the more you have, the more you want, and it's never enough, right? Like yeah. you sell you sell your first company for a million, you want to sell your second one for a billion, and then when that's done, you got it. There's no place you can get to that's good enough. I think that's a a pretty core part of human psychology, and it's very uh, beneficial from an evolutionary standpoint because. If you, you know, you don't want satisfied mammals running around like you want mammals that are like more. More. Um, So they invent and figure out and grow thumbs and stuff like that. So so there's there's definitely an, an advantage to that psychology, but there's a disadvantage at a personal level and a system level, which is because more is never enough. We can be very dissatisfied and we can often forget our gratitude and forget our context mm. rapidly mm-hmm. as we as we get more indifferent. And so I find that like, yes, this is the bane of my existence is that for whatever reason, I feel like I maintain some perspective on what we have and why it's special, possibly because I did a lot of hard work to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And and when people are dissatisfied with our with our meal, I'm like, yeah, but we're like at 11 Madison Park and the fish is a little off and we're not at McDonald's. Like we've we've already achieved so much and we've already got so much. And it's and it's a weird one because I I know, you know, even recently in our own DEI work, it can be easy to to look at a system, come into a system and be like, "Well, it's better than the last place I came from, so maybe I won't mm-hmm. raise my voice." Mhm. And we have to simultaneously do both. So my new take on this is like in in the spirit of Rodney's, you know, most famous T-shirt, there is a third way. And I think the third way is like, allow yourself to keep communicating about what could be better. Don't quit just because things are good enough. Mm-hmm. But also like make sure that you mark gratitude and appreciation way more regularly than you naturally would so that you just have some sense and like go on a field trip, go visit, go talk to just like get out of your own head a little bit, because then you can come back to the design work, not not wanting to do it, but with some grace and some humor and some lightness to just mm-hmm. be like, you know what, we can do better in this area, but I'm not wrapped around the handle about it anymore because we have paper towels in the restroom. Yeah. And like that was my big thing when I came back from my trip to Ethiopia, where I did not see a paper towel for a week and a half. I got back and I was like, oh, my God, Paper towels. I can dry my hands after I wash yeah. them. And in my mind, I was like, whoa, imagine how disconnected you were two weeks ago mm-hmm. that you like you weren't you weren't even aware of that. So I do think like you've got to get in and out frequently to to be able to play the game with a never ending ambition, but but play it lightly. Yeah, I think that that really resonates with me. And I feel like both and we talked about this actually in our episode with Bill from Roche the other day, like reflecting as a group on what you've achieved and what we have created and staying grounded in that, even while 
raising our aspirations forever (laughs) is the move. Because in the absence of one, it just feels like the never-ending critique. And that gets boring. And also, it means like you don't even get to enjoy your meal. Because you're just like, you know, the foie gras could have been better. And it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, you know what? (laughs) People are starving. (laughs) So, yeah, I I think that's right. And and what it makes me want to take some action on maybe for our upcoming retreat, is I feel like we do a good job of appreciation and gratitude at an individual level. I I certainly have people individually be like, thank you for this thing you did. But I I, I don't feel like we necessarily do that so much about like, look at all the work that we did on this thing or look how this project has done or whatever. And I'm interested in us having some moments of appreciating the things that we've made collectively. And, mm-hmm. I, and I feel like it, if we can do that, so thank you, Basecamp, for the inspiration. Uh, if we can do that, maybe it will help in the moments that are like, we should, but we're not done or we should have more, which of course is true and we'll never yeah. stop. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that that's a pretty good place to, to shut it down. All right. Well, if you all like what you're hearing, please review us or forward our show to someone who needs it. Yes, do that. And while we're at it, we'll quickly tip our hat to Mr. Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work and think through some of these thorny issues. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now, please go change something, but do it carefully. 